Well, good morning. We are uh, we're in uh, the third week of a six week series here called Going Home. Going Home. We've been going through the book of Ruth and we've been learning as we go, watching her and those around her act and react. And we're answering this question. When God has big plans, what should I be doing so that I can be used for his glory and be a part of that? When God has big plans, what can I be doing to be a part of that? Just a quick review here for those of you who are joining us, maybe you've missed a week or whatever. We'll jump back, walk through two chapters real quickly. Don't worry, it won't take 85 minutes to go through, right? So the first chapter, we just started out, it says, in the time of the judges. This was a period of time where we find in the book of Judges, it says, everybody did what was right in their own eyes, right? Like chaos. Uh, Whatever feels good for me, I'm going to do it. And Well, you know what? This is the way it dawned on me today, so I don't care what the rules are by God. This is the way I'm going to go after it. And actually, it doesn't sound very different than today, does it? They did what was right in their own eyes, and it created chaos. You know, there was a family, and the man who was leading the family, his name was Elimelech, and he basically said, I'm done with this. There's a famine going on. The hand of God is actually disciplining. He may not have even been aware that the hand of God was disciplining. He basically just said, I'm going out from under. He went out from underneath the famine and he moved over to Moab. Why is that such a big deal? Because we're told in Leviticus that the land will bring forth fruit if you obey me. This famine was actually a statement of you're not following me. This seems to be one of those times where you're doing what's right in your own eyes. Knock it off. Let's shape and change and bring you back around. And and instead he went to another country. And he and his family were hanging out there for a while and things didn't go very well. Elimelech, not very long after that, passed away. And uh, after he passed away, his two sons ended up, well, they married people from Moab. Not necessarily exactly spoken against in scripture, but there was a statement of watch out. Make sure you don't hook up with those who are hooking up with other gods. There was a list of seven nations they weren't to marry. Moab wasn't in that seven, but there was a basic statement of be careful about interacting with people in other lands and other gods. You might just be distracted and drawn away. It wasn't long after that that those two sons, well, they passed away. And now Naomi is without a husband, without her two sons. She's got two daughters-in-law, and she's in a man's world trying to figure out how to survive. She ends up hearing in the fields that the famine back over there in Israel is done. And so it's basically, that's it, girls, pack up shop, we're going back home. And so she ends up packing up with them, and they're on their way, and it doesn't take but a few steps out of town until they realize this isn't going to work. The emotions of leaving the family and the friends and the home that that they're walking away from. And they're walking away without a husband and without a future. And where are they headed? And Naomi can't provide anything. And the list goes on and on. And one of the women's like, you proved it to me. Good enough. I'm done. Gives her a kiss. Goes back home. She goes back to Moab. Ruth, however, it says, but Ruth clung to her. Threw her arms around her, literally physically demonstrating, I'm here with you for this kind of time. And then she gives her famous speech, right? I'm going to go where you go. I'm going to lodge where you lodge. Your God's going to be my God. Your people, my people. I'm going to die wherever we end up going together. I'm with you. God, help me with that. I'm going to follow you faithfully. 
Then she moves into chapter 2 where she's back in Bethlehem now with Naomi and the two of them together are working through life and they're trying to figure out what to do and she basically says, Ruth says, hey, I'll step out, I'll work, I'll go work in the fields and glean, let's see what God's got in store. And as she goes out that day, the author of Ruth just says, it just so happened that she was in the field of Boaz at the same time that Boaz was coming along. Yes, the sovereign hand of God moving and leading the two of them together. And as she is working hard from morning until night, barely taking breaks, Boaz sees her, hears about her care for Naomi and says, surely this woman is doing exactly what God wants. I'm going to take part in helping that. And he steps in and he begins to share of the very things God has entrusted to him. Some of his grain, he says, make it easy for her. Help her to be able to pick some stuff up. Drop some things on purpose. I want this woman to be cared for. He ends up sending her home with one day's work. She had collected two to three weeks of grain. It was a great time of provision. Boaz said more than that, though. He said, you can come back every day during this harvest. You glean here. You don't go anywhere else. You can have our water. You can have our food. I want you to work anywhere you need to work to get what you need to get. I'm going to pour it upon you. He shared of his fruitfulness. So over the last two weeks, we saw all about being faithful as Ruth clung to what she needed to do in following with Naomi. We saw sharing in her fruitfulness as Ruth worked hard, as Boaz shared of what God entrusted to him so that God's work could be accomplished. Today we enter into Ruth chapter 3, and we're going to see some work being done with strategic planning. You know, we've got the ushers coming forward. They've got some Bibles in their hands. We're going to start out in Ruth 3. If you need a Bible, just raise your hands and they'll get one to you. Just get the attention of the ushers and they'll get a Bible to you, okay? Ruth chapter 3. We're simply answering the question, how can I plan wisely so that I can participate with God in getting his work accomplished? First step. We're going to look at actually each of the three characters. So the first one, we're looking at Ruth. So Ruth, step out. Take a God-honoring strategic step while letting God direct. Step out. Take a God-honoring strategic step while letting God direct. Ruth is going to show us how to step out. She's going to work with Naomi here, so let's check this out. It starts out, chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Notice it starts with the word then. It's connecting chapter 2 to chapter 3. If you actually go back to the end of chapter 2, it says there in verse 23, So Ruth kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning, when? Until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. You see, the author is having a knack for ending each chapter and starting the next with a little bit of crisis. And again, we're supposed to hear crisis. It's the end of the barley harvest season. You know, that time where she was actually getting what she needed to eat and what she needed to care for Naomi. The question is now begged, how in the world are you going to keep caring for her? Now what's God's plan? Author then says, chapter 3, verse 1, glad you asked. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, now check out Naomi's personality shift. Remember, she was bitter, Upset, She was just starting to take a shift in chapter 2 where she's beginning to shoot a little blessing out here, a blessing out there kind of statement. Listen to this. 
Should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? In other words, hey, you've done a great job caring for me. Unbelievable work over these last weeks. The harvest typically lasted seven, eight weeks long. It could be that she was out there for about two months every day gleaning and bringing things home so that the two of them had things to eat and things to stockpile so that they had things to eat for tomorrow. She saw that care and she saw that hope and she saw God working and her temperament's beginning to shift and she says, my turn. I need to be caring for you. You notice the word rest. We even ended with that song at the offertory time there. Time to rest in our God. You know, her challenge here is actually a tie back to chapter 1, verse 9, where she said the exact same thing. My job as your mother is to make sure that I find rest for you. Yeah, I'm your mother-in-law, but I'm still your mother. May I find rest for you and take responsibility for your life. She's picking back up that which she had set down right here. She says, it's time for me to care for you. Now, I got to tell you, when we start to do some caring, when we start to reach out and make some plans, there's a couple of things that would be wise to put together. I just put down three points here. Three steps to doing some strategic following. Three steps to doing some strategic following. Okay, first step, identify your opportunities. Simple, right? What's available? Where should I go? Closed doors speak just as loudly as open doors, right? Identify your opportunities. Second step, make godly plans. Notice, not just make plans, make godly plans. Things that align with scripture, things that align with God's character. Lord, what do you have in store? How would you have me go after this? Not the self-absorbed, I'm going after it, I'll take whatever I want, I'm going to get what I want, but the Lord, what do you want done? So first, identify opportunities. Second, make godly plans. And then the third one is step out with wise faith. Wise faith. I think I just coined that phrase, wise faith. We need to make a t-shirt of it, okay? There's people who live with wisdom, and then there's people who live with faith. Let's try to live with both. Wise faith, okay? This combination of what makes sense and how is God honoring things and, and what does he have for us and the wisdom of it all, and yet the willingness to say, and I don't understand everything that's going on and I can't completely see the end in sight, but I am willing to step out to that next thing you have shown me. Some wise faith. Step out with that, okay? Good combination. That's your three steps to strategic following. Where'd you get those from, Tim? Check this out. All right, here we go. You ready? So the first, identifying some opportunities. Verse 2. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? Is not he our relative? Come on, there's an answer. We got a guy named Boaz and he's our relative. And he's already been caring for you. He's been pouring out for you. I see an opportunity ahead of us. I see a guy who right before us is making some provisions and some care. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? And next, see, can you hear? She's probably pointing even. See, like, can you see it going on? She's beginning to do a little demonstrative. I'm going to care for you now. Check this out. See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. She's pointing to an area where he's now going to be available. And you can go meet him there over at the handy dandy threshing floor. What's a threshing floor? Let's make sure we understand what it is, okay? Threshing floor. This is a place that was either typically a platform or, or a high hill 
Why? Because the wind needed to come past it, okay? Because what you did there is you beat the grain until the grain came off the stalk, and then you'd throw the chaff in the air, and the wind would catch the chaff and blow it downwind, wherever that would end up, right? And as it blew downwind, it would drop the grain right where it was and take the chaff away, and you could then collect the grain and be scooping it to the side, and you would keep doing this. Well, question, what time of day did the wind tend to come most often? Well, it was typically around dinner and after, at nighttime. So it was evening and later evening is the best time to work. That was your highest winds. So there was a lot of nighttime work going on at the threshing floor, okay? The threshing floor was also kind of a public domain. It was this place that was made available for the nation or for the city, and they would tend to come together and make deals and kind of alignments. All right, I'll take these three days at the floor, and I'll get my grain done, and I'll get it out of there, and then the next guy comes in. So it was sort of this shared space that they would tend to utilize, all right? That's why you end up seeing it kind of in a public setting, and you see things like needing to protect the grain, things like that, all right? So the threshing floor, he's going to the public spot and he's going to be doing some pretty heavy duty work and it's going to be going on from dinner time till late and there's going to be some pretty heavy celebration in the midst of it. Just so you know, harvest time was not one of those things that they lamented. It was one of those things they basically had a big party for. They worked hard, then they celebrated well. Okay, it was basically praise God for what he's providing. Look at the greatness of what he's done as our land is bringing forth its fruit. Threshing floor. Okay, so that's the first thing. Basically, identify your opportunity. We got a guy. His name is Boaz. Great character. Great heart. He's been providing already. He's lived up to his name. As a matter of fact, he's already related to us. This thing about the kinsman redeemers right there in front of us. This is the guy. Oh, better yet, he's going to be right down the block at the threshing floor. Opportunity identified. Second, Let's make sure then we make some godly plans, right? All right, here we go. So he starts out in verse 3. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. Every good plan starts with a bath. I don't know. (laughs) Right? Basically, water was something that was kind of a hot commodity back then. And really, you had to be a little careful when you used it. So to be quite frank, they washed on special occasions only. Okay? So it wasn't the millions of gallons of water burned a day as you just take a shower or bathe because it'll keep us the absolute cleanest. It was the, hey, this is one big event. Make sure you've washed up for it, okay? And anoint, like put some perfume on, make yourself smell good. Wash and anoint and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. You know, many have said this actually looks a lot like when a bride is being presented for a wedding. It could be that she's actually walking through that process. She's saying, this isn't just about looking hot for Boaz. This is about making sure that you're actually saying, I want you to grasp how much I'm offering myself as a bride. She's walking through the process of presenting here. She follows those rules. Notice it says there, take a cloak. That would be like a big bulky thing that doesn't show your figure. Okay, that's kind of what that word means. It's this big baggy thing. Now, the the intent would be that it maybe could hide the fact that she's female. It also could be that it could be used for bringing home grain and that kinds of thing, which we end up finding later on is exactly what happens. A cloak. And he says, go down to the threshing floor, that place where he's going to be working. Do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Until he has finished eating and drinking. What's going on here? It's let the guy do his work. 
Remember, he's only got a few days at that public place. He's down there. He's got his slot. He filled it in. He's now going to be working hard at getting the grain converted over and getting it all set aside. They work long, hard hours. Then at the end of it, because it's been through the supper hour and all that, then they eat and get something to drink. And so there's a late night relaxation. Let him get to that point. Hard work, relaxing and celebrating. He's in a great mood. He's not going to be distracted. You walk up and you're trying to do the, I'm all washed and looking pretty thing. And he's out there whacking the grain and throwing it in the air. And you're like, Hey, how's it going, Boaz? And he's like, whatever, I'm working, right? So let's not have that happen. Let him get done. Let him get relaxed. Let him get comfortable. Then approach him. That's the plan. Okay. I just want to tell you, there are many that make too much of a few of these things here. And we're just going to talk about them for a second each time. The eating and the drinking. Some have said, well, this must mean that she's trying to wait until he gets drunk. Because, you know, it says in chapter 2, he's a worthy man. So, of course, that's what it means. What? Like, what are you talking about, right? They're going a different direction, and they're beginning to make chapter 3 a very dark story, when actually it's a very respectable story. So just in case you might run into this later on in life, and somebody says, yeah, I think she was told to wait until he got drunk. Wrong answer, right? This is just waiting until he's done with his hard work and he's relaxed. It says a little bit later that his heart's merry. Let's make sure we grasp that, okay? Next it says, when he lies down, verse 4, still part of making godly plans, when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Like, don't lose track of them amongst all the workers. It's dark out there. You know what I'm saying? Like, you got to picture it. You can almost not see your hand in front of your face, right? And as he walks away from the torches and he begins to go lay down, don't kind of go, oh, look at the stars. Oh, which one is he? Now we have to figure out in the dark where he's laying, right? Don't be that, okay? Watch him. Observe where he's going in the dark. Sounds like a good plan. Kind of basic common sense, right? Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what to do. That's the plan. Go and uncover his feet and lie down. He's going to tell you what to do. So uncover his feet. This phrase means basically to take the cloak and roll it back so the feet are showing. And he's now she's now laying at the feet of the person, somewhat of a humble position, in a position saying, I'm laying myself before you. I've got some needs and some requests. And, and I'm making myself available. In fact, to be engaged to someone, there's a, an act that they did of taking the cloak and covering the woman next to them. And that was a statement of, I am going to cover or protect them. This was kind of an engagement thing. So as she begins to roll back the cloak off of his feet, she's really saying too, hey, I'm actually interested in being engaged if you'd want to go down that path, okay? Now again... Some have taken this little moment and they've decided to take the phrase lie down and turn it to a sexual meaning. And they've decided to take roll the cloak back to be something very dark and lascivious. And all of a sudden we don't have a worthy man and a worthy woman. We've got two people having a wild party in the middle of the dark. And that's not what the story's about. So just so you know, yes, that's out there and they're wrong. Okay. So yes, it's out there and they're what? Okay, so let's keep that in mind. We've got two very honorable people, and they're working with God on a godly plan to make clear what their steps are, all right? And she lays back the cloak so that the feet are revealed, and he'll tell you what to do next. Now, in our society, if somebody were to come up while you were sleeping and roll the covers back off your feet and lay down, 
you would raise up and tell them what to do <laughs> as well, but it might be a little different answer, right? What are you thinking about? Why are you doing that? Why did you wake me up? Now my feet are, right? <laughs> That's the direction we might head with it. He's catching the impact of this message, all right? So first, the opportunity was seen. Second, the godly plans were made. And third, it's step out with wise faith. Ruth's answer, she replied, all that you say, I will do. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust what God is doing here. I'm going to trust the culture and the rules and the boundaries. I'm going to trust this kinsman redeemer thing. I'm going to do what you say. I'm following you, Ruth, on this one. A wise stepping out in faith. You know, we've used this illustration before, but it's really powerful. It works well, so let's just go back to it. Imagine that we've got like a pond out in front of us or a creek and we need to get across. And there's some stepping stones going across. The catch is there's this big giant mist. So all I can really see is just a little bit in front of me. I can't quite see where the stepping stones are and how it gets across or even maybe how far across it is before I get there. But I know I need to take some steps. So as the mist pulls back, the wise move is to identify your opportunities. There's a step. Begin to make some godly plans about what that could look like, you know, as you reach out and what that might mean and how I could care for those around me in the midst of it and what honors God and and then take that step and step there, okay? This is what it looks like to walk the Christian faith. This is what it looks like to actually walk strategically in your life, is to identify the spot as the mist pulls back around you and make sure that it makes sense as an opportunity. And if it does, then you begin to evaluate godly plans for moving that way, and then you take the step. Question, if I'm standing on this step back here, and I go, boy, I really don't, I don't like this. This is small. It's uncomfortable. I'm not really liking this. I need to get off of this. As a matter of fact, I'm going to... Okay, question. Did I just get wet or not? The answer is, I got wet. Why? Because I'm looking back. I'm looking down. I'm looking around. I'm not looking where I need to step. I just step to get off. Quite often, our moves are based more on getting away from than getting to. Strategic following is all about identifying the opportunities ahead of you, making sure you grasp what's going on and what the wise plans are to hit those, and then take the step to hit it. Eyes fixed on Jesus Christ ahead of you, seeing the step right in front of you, taking it, not looking back, not looking at what you were in, but looking at where you're going. Strategic planning. It's a big part of our lives if we're going to honor him. Make sure that faith's a part of it. Make sure you are willing to take those risks where you're going, I can only see one step though. There's mist out there. How do I know? And take the one step God's showing you to be wise and opportunistic and available. Take it amongst all of the opportunities that might be there. And some of them you may need to ignore and blow off. Take the one and step and see what God's going to reveal as the mist continues to blow away. That's what it's about, okay? Ruth is doing a great job of strategic following. How about you and me? How are you doing when it comes to this? You know, we're in our small groups. We're talking about shaping our hearts, building our physical home. Two pieces. 
Shaping our hearts, building our homes. So in the shaping our hearts domain, how are we doing when it comes to friends or family or, or job or, or some kind of life choices with schooling or whatever? How are we doing with making God-honoring strategic decisions that are looking forward, making wise evaluations, understanding, making the plans, and stepping right where God has us to go? How are we doing with that? Are you following well? Or has it become more of a big emotional adventure maybe? A bit of distraction or a bit of frustration about the pain you're in. And, and so there's wild jumps. There's maybe a lack of understanding what God's doing. And maybe you're ending up in troubles you didn't want to be in. Or with friendships you didn't want to be carrying. Maybe you're in a spot that you're in because you've literally not done the strategic following. It's time to get back to that spot. Remember in the first chapter we talked about get back to the fork in the road. Lord, help me get back to where I need to so we can start this thing from scratch and get to the right spot. Where do we need to get to? Even that takes some wise, opportunistic thinking. Don't just run rashly. God, where do you want me to be? Okay? That's shaping our hearts. The building our home piece. You know, we're in the middle of a building campaign. You've been seeing it in in your book. There's details. One of the things I wanted to throw up, let's go ahead and throw that slide up. This is a slide that, that you're going to be working through this week. It's in your book. And you worked through part of it last week. You can see the top there. It says fruitfulness giving. Remember last week we were talking about like Boaz and from the things that God's entrusted to him, things that you can begin to share out with God. And as we're going after this capital campaign, just some thoughts about ways you could share of your fruitfulness with maybe a savings account element you've got set aside that I'm not talking about hitting it to a level where it hurts you. I'm talking about what has God entrusted to you so you can lavish back to him and you can keep going down the line. Some unexpected income, a bonus or a refund or a an inheritance coming in, or maybe you've got a retirement account and you're in a spot where that makes wise sense to give from that. We might even have some stock to give or selling some assets, you know, that car or that boat that we just know we need to get rid of, right? Those things that we're sitting there with that you might decide, hey, I feel like God's calling me to do this. Those are some decisions you can make strategically to give of your fruitfulness. That was last week. This week, strategic giving. What does that look like? I'm talking about long-term commitment. I'm talking about making sense over the long haul. You look at some of these, defer making a large purchase. Like, maybe I was going to go out and buy that new car, and instead what I'm going to do is just get this car we've got fixed, and we're going to use it. Or maybe I was going to buy a house, and we said, no, we're going to decide to live in the house we've got. Or maybe we were going to go on a nice vacation, and uh, we're going to go on a nice one but a little bit less expensive one and just honor God that way or whatever the choices might be there. Another style of strategic giving is just maybe reducing the monthly expenses that you've got going out of your budget, Uh, reducing some giving to outside elements that you might be focusing just for this time to here and and some budgeting of monthly giving over and above the tithe. We just want to make sure we make that clear that the giving we're talking about as we go for the property really is over and above giving. Okay, there's a giving that you do regularly to this church and that needs to continue because we still have the regular operating expenses. This is over and above to get us to that. It's about being strategic in that. God, what do you have in store? Here's a simple little math. We did this at one of the nights. It works real well. Okay, Starbucks costs about four bucks a cup, right? So let's say you have one of those a day, Monday through Friday. Okay, that's $20 a week. 50 weeks, that's $1,000. That's $1,000. If you decided to just off one Starbucks and go with a homemade cup of brew, right? Like little decisions like that can make a big deal. So yeah, some of you are like, you got to be kidding. You just asked me to give up my life. 
Don't worry, you can hold your Starbucks cup low. Dude, I didn't even know you had that in your hand. That's so sad. I'm so sorry. You just never know what God's going to do, right? All right. So uh, now I've lost my place. Yes. Whatever it is that God might be calling you to do, to make some decisions, to just do some strategic giving, I don't know what it's going to look like. For you, you have to make that call. My request to you is just this. God, help me identify some opportunities. We've thrown some up on the chart for you. This is in the back of your book. It's, it's in actually the next page of your week that you're in. You can just take a look at it and be praying through. Lord, what do you have us to do? What would you might want, want us to do to participate with this so that we can say thank you for what you're doing in my life? That's all. Some strategic thinking that God might be honored. Okay? Enough said. Enjoy your Starbucks. Okay? All right. So that's Ruth. Let's go to Boaz. Follow God's rules. Never take a shortcut. Follow God's rules. Never take a shortcut. So verse 6, let's just start out. It says, So she, Ruth, went down to the threshing floor. Remember that place that they get on loan for a couple of days, and there's a lot of hard work and a little bit of celebration going on. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. She was taking an obedient step in following. Verse 7. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry. Are you hearing it? The hard work is done for the day. The relaxation is in place. He's in a great spot. His heart was merry. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Why would he lie at the end of the heap of grain? Well, probably because it's a public place and this is now private grains being held in a public place and it's not very safe. So he goes to the end where he can put some protection around it. Okay. He's probably watching over his possessions in this couple of day time period. Then Ruth, she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. The man was startled and turned over. For whatever reason, he all of a sudden woke up. Maybe he stretched out a little bit and he bumped her. Whatever happened, all of a sudden he noticed there's someone at my feet, right? It says, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Now, usually when the author writes behold in there, it's for you and for me. He's trying to tell us, check this out. But I got to tell you, at this point, I don't think he's trying to say that. We're like, no, duh, you just told us she lay down there, right? This is Boaz's response, right? He's in the, whoa, check that out. There's like a woman at my feet. You know what I mean? That's what's going on. He's kind of amazed at what's happening. He says, who are you? You can only imagine it's the pitch black. I mean, we can hardly understand it because of all of our cities and the lights, right? So you go in the back at midnight and you can see very far, really, quite frankly. But when you go out in the middle of nowhere with no city lights on and you stand in the dark and then you try to look and see there's somebody this far away and you're like, who are you? Why are you at my feet? Right? He's asking this simple question. Her response. She says, I am Ruth, your servant. Now, remember, up till now, she's typically been introduced as Ruth, the Moabite woman. Now she's Ruth, your servant. Seven or eight weeks of working, him providing, her being able to take advantage of some of those provisions. She has taken some progress and some understanding where she is with Boaz. And she's basically saying, I am here humbly 
under your care. I'm not just the woman from Moab. I'm your servant. And now she answers with a very special answer. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Let's make sure we grasp this really well, okay? Spread your wings over. Where have we heard that phrase before? Well, we just heard it in the prior chapter when Boaz was talking to her and he says, it's amazing how you have come to the God of Israel and let him spread his wings over you. She's referring back to an analogy that he's used. She's saying, yes, you've said that I'm trusting in God, but as I trust in him, let me tell you, I'm now trusting in you as being a vehicle or a tool from him. That's part of the message. You told me to let God spread his wings over me. I'm saying, spread your wings over me, man, right? So she's tying the two together. More than that, that's one piece. Bigger than that, it's this. The word wing, that word actually is the same word that would be used for like kilt or cloak, that thing that he would be wearing. And the thing that they would do in an engagement is to spread it over the woman to say, I am covering her. I am going to protect and provide for her. I am now engaged to her. This was basically saying, marry me. Okay, yes, Ruth actually said, marry me. But she said it with a very poetic style. Spread your wings over me, right? So when we read that, ladies, you have a responsibility. When we read this phrase, spread your wings over your servant, we need to be going, Ah. Okay, ready? Try it, ladies. Ready? Spread your wings over your servant. Aww. Yeah. Guys, now you know why I didn't ask you to do it. <laughs> Guys, your job is to say this. You go, girl. <laughs> All right, you ready? Everybody ready? Spread your wings over your servant. You go, girl. Okay, that was a little lame. <laughs> Are you ready? Spread your wings over your servant. All right, let's put it together. Here we go. Spread your wings over your servant. All right. Now we're getting it. Okay. This is a big deal. This is one of those moments that has a lot of tenderness and a lot of poetry and a lot of relationship and yet a lot of boldness and a lot of confidence and a lot of willingness to step out. And so she is stepping up and saying, what do you think? I'm available. And, and what do you think? And she's spoken a little poetically, but she's made it clear. Do you want to marry me? Well, how do you know that that's what she was saying to him? Maybe you're just reading between the lines. Uh, check out what Boaz's response is. Verse 10. He says, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that You have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my townsmen, fellow townsmen, know that you are a worthy woman. He says, oh, yeah, I'm going to do for you. I am absolutely going to take care. And we're going to see in just a second what he means by that. He says the fellow townsmen are now referring to you as a worthy woman. Remember, in chapter 2, it started out, Boaz, the worthy man. And it actually means mighty man of valor. Now it's coming to describe her, the worthy woman. We have the worthy man and the worthy woman coming together for a very worthy marriage ceremony. 
That's what God's showing and displaying here. Why do I think that this has nothing to do with wrong actions and lascivious behavior? Because a worthy woman and a worthy man are coming together to solve one of God's greatest promises. God leading mightily. He says right after in verse 12, And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning if he will redeem you. Well, then good. He's basically saying, yeah, you're right. You've called it right. I am your redeemer. What does a redeemer mean? We talked about this last week. It's the guy who actually has the responsibility of saying, I need to weigh in if a son has passed away and there is no blood lineage underneath him, there is no son to follow through with, then it's somebody's responsibility to step in and carry that family line on. And as you step in, it involves both property and relationship. Two different laws going on. One of them that says you're responsible to purchase the property for them, make sure it's covered, right? Get it into their name. And then the second piece is to say, you need to make sure that you end up having a son with that child, with that uh, woman, so that that son can carry on the original lineage. That's some lost heritage. Do you see that? You're going to step in and you're going to have a child with them and it go, the property goes over that direction. But it's a sacrifice you're making in order to care for the nation of Israel, the Redeemer. He's saying, yes, I am a Redeemer, but I am not your closest kinsman Redeemer. There's one closer. If he says he's going to redeem you, well, then good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down now until the morning. He's basically saying, you are protected. If it's not him, it's me. Done deal. You're watched over. Don't worry. Relax. I know this is a tenuous situation. You're covered. It's either him or it's me. We'll figure it out in the morning. Go ahead. Go back to sleep. We've got you watched. Notice that Boaz is quite honored that she didn't go to the younger or maybe even the richer looking around and trying to say, who would be my best? Instead, she's saying, you are the one that God has brought across my path. You're the opportunity. And Boaz, although he is looking at it going, seems pretty obvious that this is what the sovereign God is doing. Why isn't he just saying, so I've made my decision. I can see what's happening. I'm just going to take it. Call it impetuous. Call it my gut feel that I'm good with, but I know where God wants me. I'm just going to do it. You know what? It always pays to go through the steps that God asks you to go through so that in the end, it is clearly led by God, his word honored. Just take the steps. And as you do it, God will reveal. Don't run ahead. I know what I'm doing and I can. That's about I. Do you hear the eye in there? I'm going to make this. It's obvious that this is. So I'm just going to just stop. Take the steps. Got to work it out. No shortcuts. It's really important we do that because at the end, you can always look back and say, I did not manipulate. I did not control. I allowed God to shape it. And look what he has done. That's where we want to be. Boaz says, no shortcuts. We're going to walk through this. I believe it will be me, most likely. I am very willing to stand in. Let's go talk to that closer kinsman redeemer, and let's see what's going to happen. Notice it says in verse 14, So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another, still pitch black. 
And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. In other words, this place of hard work and then some alcohol flowing after it, let's not make it look bad, okay? Let's keep your honor intact. You are a worthy woman. Let's handle it as such. Verse 15, and he said, bring the garment you are wearing. Remember that cloak? Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Basically, we have him being the provider, pouring and measuring, and her being the one in need receiving. This could actually almost be viewed somewhat as a dowry gift too. He's basically handing over some gifts to care for Naomi, to care for her. He's sending her back without being empty-handed and saying, don't worry, we've got it covered. No shortcuts. You know, often shortcuts are taken for all the wrong reasons. I mean, what's the number one reason we take a shortcut? Well, quite frankly, because we want what we want and we want it now. And I really don't want to wait. And I don't want to put any effort in. And I don't want to hear that it's not that. So I'm just going to go get what I want. Thank you. And so we go after it. It's about me and the me world. The problem with that is it often leaves messes in our life. You know, there's a guy, uh, his name was Johnson. He was actually the chairman of Johnson & Johnson, the company. And uh, he was notorious for being a horrible um, reviewer of plants and facilities. When he came in, he would be vicious and attacking and, and really judgmental. He'd fire people if it didn't go well that day. And, and so it was kind of known that he was that way. And there was a rumor out that he was coming to a plant about a half hour ahead of when he was actually there. So the plant manager ran around the whole place, getting everybody, taking stuff, cleaning it up, making it spotless. Let's get this thing looking good. The problem was we haven't necessarily thought through where everything goes. And so just get it just get it upstairs. Put it on the roof, okay? He's not going to see that. So they put it upstairs. They lock the door to the roof. Come back down. Everything looks spotless. The chairman's walking around looking, and he says, everything looks great. This is perfect. It's spotless. I have a question for you. What's that? Why in the world do you keep this so spotless down here, and you leave the roof a wreck like that? And he goes, how would you know about the roof? I flew in on a helicopter. Don't you... Do you know how I get to these plants? So he flies in over the top and he sees a complete disarray from a different perspective. Shortcuts do exactly that in our life. From our angle, the angle we're looking at, it looks really clean. But from another angle, you can see the complete disarray going on. Watch out. Don't take those shortcuts. It's not getting the full job done. It's just trying to manage the end point, not the progress of growth. Have you taken a shortcut? Are you in the middle of a shortcut right now? Maybe it's time to stop the truck. And say, Lord, what do you want me to do? How do we step appropriately to get off the shortcut and get on the longer path? Grow me. Change me. So first, step out strategically, wisely. Second, no shortcuts. Third, Naomi. Wait. Be patient and allow God to work. Wait, be patient and allow God to work. Now, in this spot, Naomi has just done some great things in informing. Notice she starts in verse 16. When she came to her mother-in-law, Ruth, and when Ruth came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? She told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave me. And he said, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. He took care of me physically. He gave some great stuff that we need. He was a nice guy. He answered that he's interested. He's going to follow through. And he's really cared for me. Verse 18. She replied, 
Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. You wait now. Remember before she said, you need to wash, you need to anoint, you need to go, you need to observe, you need to, all these verbs, right? Do, 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 get this thing set up, you've done your job, sit down, wait. Now it's up to God and this man to do his thing. You trust that this worthy man is going to do exactly what he needs to do. You trust that God himself is moving, you just hang on and see what God has for you. Waiting. Yeah, that's a real fun word, right? When we're just hanging out, trying to figure out what God's going to do next. I found this quote. This is a great way to kind of end it. Three steps to waiting. G. Campbell Morgan. Three steps to waiting. Number one, you need to have a willingness. Willingness to act under command. A willingness to act under command. Number two, you need to have a readiness. A readiness to receive a command. You really need to be saying, Lord, if you have a command for me, I'm going to act on it. What is it you've got? So a willingness to act, a readiness to receive, and last, an ability to do nothing until you hear that command. That's what real waiting is. Waiting. The reason we define it that way is because otherwise waiting can be really confused with complete laziness. What's the difference between waiting and doing nothing and not being willing to do anything? The difference is you need to be ready to act as soon as it comes. That's what waiting is. It's looking like a runner that gets in the blocks and ready to take off. You're waiting for that gunshot, and when it comes, you're out of there, okay? That's what it looks like. A willingness to act, a readiness to receive the command, and an ability to hang on until you do receive the command. That's what real waiting looks like. She's acted. She's done her thing. Now it's time to hang on. I'll just tell you this about the, a little story about the property to give you an example. Uh, John and I came down here to senior pastor of this church about two and a half years ago and uh, have loved every minute of being a part of this. It's just been a fantastic uh, journey for us to be with you and uh, and loving going to be here for the millennia ahead. Yeah, like we want this. This is our home. We are excited about being here for watching God move like forever. Like we want to retire from this place, right? Like we love being here in the midst of being down here. We were driving back and forth and watching this church grow little by little. And I got to tell you, driving past Pinecrest, there was a couple of times where I remember sitting with Kent and we were talking. We even went for a few drives when we drove north on Pinecrest and looking around and we're like, I think God should put us at Pinecrest. Where's that at? I remember one time I was talking with Steve Belzer and I said, I think he's putting us in Alterfer. I have no idea why. It just should be there. So I guess they're going to have to sell everything. And he's like, yeah, that's not going to happen. I'm like, I don't know. I'm just telling you. I feel like we need to be around there somewhere. But you know what? The body hadn't been growing yet. The property that we then found just a couple hundred yards over, it was great. It was nice property, but it was completely landlocked and would have cost a ton to get it out. So while it would have been central, it was not accessible. One of our other rules, clearly visible. See that land right in there that we can't get to? That's ours. So we hung on. It was an opportunity that didn't make sense yet. And we just kept waiting and praying and looking at other places and looking at other ways and avenues. And all of a sudden, something else came back. All the neighbors around that agreed that they would pay for the road to be built as well. So now we got to share the cost and the cost came tumbling down. And now it became affordable to get in 
and it's accessible. Oh, by the way, it was another year and a half that had gone by, so we gained a couple hundred people in the body, and it had clearly defined where we were coming from, and it was clearly central. So now we have central, accessible, and visible, and affordable, and God's moving, and we're able to partner with those around us, and, and so we took the steps last summer. That's what it looks like. You may want it. It may be the wrong time. It might even be the right answer, but if it's the wrong timing, it's the wrong answer. You hear me? Wait. On the Lord to answer and let's take the steps with him be strategic no shortcuts waiting as we go it's the best way to glorify him it's the best way to show we're following our God not our gut we're following our Lord and we want him glorified we're trying to show him off at every measure may God be glorified in our lives amen that's what it's about as we walk strategically Make sure your God is shown off in every step you take. Planning well, no shortcuts, waiting when need to wait. Let's pray.